John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. John 13, 1 through 11. The double effect, Jesus' love. John 13, 1 through 11. So let me set the stage and we'll get to the text momentarily. If you remember all the way back at the beginning of this gospel, he set the stage and now we're at that transition point. So if you just briefly glance, if you will, back to chapter 1. And just in order to describe this scene where you get everything this morning that the Lord would have you to get. Back in John chapter 1 verse 11, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. So for 12 chapters, Jesus has been ministering and doing what he's doing in relation to the nation of Israel. For 12 chapters, that's been going on. Then you read John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, to them he gave right to become the children of God. Now, in chapters 13 through 17, you will see all of his interest put into his disciples. So mark change here. From here, 13 through 17, all that's going to be transpiring is in this close-knit group of those who received him as Lord and Savior. So I just want you to see that break. No longer the nation. Now I'm going to invest in these 12. We're at the last hour. We're 24 hours away from crucifixion. Now we're at this last hour. And these guys are about to take the gospel to the ends of the world. So that's the division, and then I also want you to see the sense of this double effect of Jesus' love, and you have to make this connection or you're going to miss the whole chapter. But you understand in the Old Testament that something would be said, and it was a type. It wasn't the fulfillment, it was a type. Then in the New Testament, Jesus would come, and he would fulfill it. He would be the anti-type. So you had the type, then you had the fulfillment. We understand that you know, from the Old Testament and then the application to Christ in the New Testament. We have the same thing here. This story, the washing of the feet, is the type. What it is pointing to is the cross. The cross is the fulfillment of what this lays out in chapter 13. So this act of Jesus getting humble... <coughs> taking on the form of a slave and washing their feet, this self-emptying service is fulfilled when he lays his life down on Calvary's tree and sacrifices his life for his people. So that's what it's pointing to. So he's going to say in the text, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you'll understand after these things. After what things? After the cross, after the tomb, after the resurrection, and when I ascend and the Spirit of God comes, all of these things are going to make sense, and then you're going to gather them together, and you're going to preach with passion and boldness, and you're going to be willing to be martyred for my name. It's all going to come together, but right now, they may not get it, but they will get it as things unfold. So make sure you understand these things are pointing ultimately to the cross event. So when we get into washing bodies and washing feet, those types of things, we're going to look forward to a washing by blood, okay, and an ongoing sanctification. Now, double effect. Let me give you this picture, and then we'll get right to the, to the text. 
But think about, my goodness, it's 1140. All right, but that's when I started. Okay, so think about it. Jesus is on the cross, and there's a man on the right, and there's a man on the left. Jesus does one act. He's laying down his life. Uh, well, they both start out mocking. One guy's repentant in that and sees his error. The other guy doesn't change. He mocks him throughout the process. The action of Jesus on the cross maximizes that man's condemnation. He's condemned because he rejects the Son of God. Jesus shows love and substitution for a sinner. The sinner on the left says, I want none of it. Then your condemnation is maximized. The guy on the other side looks and says, wow, this must be the Son of God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you're in paradise. Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. It maximizes his celebration. So one act maximizing a condemnation and at the same time maximizing a celebration. This is the love of Christ being poured out and having two effects. The same thing is happening in this text. There's one act. It's the washing of their feet. But in the washing of the feet is a loving, humble service of a slave. In that one act, it will produce the maximization of condemnation for one and the maximum of celebration for 11. That's the double effect. Thus, the love of Christ for his own specifically and his love for his enemies generally is, is, is what is happening in this text. Now, go with me if you will. Uh, Luke chapter 22. You have to have these texts to make sense of it all. Luke chapter 22. Here's the picture as you're going to Luke 22. We're around this meal. They're not sitting in chairs around a table. They're laying on the floors, the custom of the day. They're laying there around the, the food that is set. They're having this feast together. They're having this Passover feast. They're all there. And so they've walked. They've traveled. All their feet are dirty. They're laying around this table. But what? who is it that's around this table with Jesus? Who's around this feast that's been spread before them? Everything's prepared. And know this as we go through the text. Somewhere in this room is a jar of water and a basin and a towel. Everybody sees it. It's just there like this haunting thing before them. They're all around the table. They know their culture. Every house you go into, the servant washes the feet. It's just the custom. That's what's done. Everywhere you go, you're going to go and have a meal. That is what happens. They've come in the room. Nobody has washed anybody's feet. In a sense, they might be looking around. Who's going to do the foot washing? But you note, nobody volunteers. The water's there, the basin's there, and the towel's there. But 12 people in the room are too good to take the initiative. So it just sits there. What is going on in their minds? What does Jesus see around this room? Luke 22, 24. A dispute. Now this is the context. We're in this Last Supper, and this is the context. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
So here, here are their minds and hearts. I don't, you can read the rest of the text for yourself. But in their minds and hearts, they're gathered around, sitting at the foot of the water pitcher and the basin and the towel, and going, which one of us is the greatest? I think I should be the greatest. No, I think I should be the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest here? Which one of us is the most important? Who can sit at the right hand of Jesus in his kingdom? So that's going on around this table. Also, there's one in the room. He's a quiet guy. He doesn't make much uh, to do, and he doesn't stir up much controversy. He's just kind of always there, but he has a bag of money. And he's over there contemplating how he can profit off this gig. They say, wonder how I could put some more money in my bag. I think this deal with Jesus is not going to work out. Maybe I can make like 30 pieces of silver somehow. Maybe I can just act real nice, but behind his back, I'll slander him, I'll gossip about him, and the first chance I get, I'll stab him in the back if it'll put some money in my bank. That's who's around this banquet that they're eating. But add to it this, Jesus knows that's what's going on in the room. He knows that's what the discussion, he knows their hearts. And so we're dealing with a Savior that is in the midst of sinners that he's investing in. Now, then you go to Matthew, you, just Matthew 5. They should remember things like this, but we're all prone to forget stuff. But in Matthew 5, Jesus had preached greatest sermon that's ever been preached on the face of the globe. And at the beginning of the sermon, Matthew 5, you'll find verse 43. Now, 543, Jesus is pulling from Leviticus 19, 16 through 18. And so, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let me correct your theology, church. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I read a verse like that. The enemy in the room is Judas. He's in unity with the devil. The text will bring that out. And Jesus models his own sermon before their very eyes. Who does this washes the feet of the enemy. This love of Christ, knowing that Judas won't repent, noticing that Judas won't believe, knowing that Judas is ultimately going to commit suicide, even knowing there's no chance of response, he washes his feet anyway. And then you also have Proverbs 25. You don't have to turn there unless you like, but Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 is when you do kindness to someone that's your enemy, it's like putting a heaping coals of fire on their head, right? And so that's Proverbs, and then Paul quotes that in Romans 12. This is the way you're to act to your enemy. Wash their feet. See, we're, we're Baptists, we understand this. We greet and fellowship with each other, but I'm not so sure we're real good at washing the feet of those we're opposed to. I'm not so sure that we're good at 
humility and service to those that we don't get along with. There's this, this kind of a tension there that we're eager to love one another, rightly, we should, but Jesus models a love for an enemy that we should duplicate, and the text will bear that out eventually, that we should duplicate his example. All right, having said that, now, John 13. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I will not belabor this point. I've already preached two whole messages on verse 1. But what we know from verse 1 is that Jesus loved them, and he loved them to the very end. All the faults, all the failures, Peter denies, sin happens, they're discussing who's greatest. All the imperfections of his people, his love was never abated. He always loved them. He loved them enough to discipline them. He loved them enough to correct them. He loved them enough to not let them go. He loved them enough to make sure that the work that he began in them, he would complete it until his day. He loved them, and that's the way he loves all of his children. He has set covenant love upon his people, and he will not let them go. So this is, that's the main point of this whole text. If you miss the love of Christ, you miss the whole thing. Now, in this room, verse 2, during this supper, while the meal is going on, when the devil had already put into the heart, but already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, it's a complicated Greek text here, but it doesn't have the object. It's already put into the heart. Whose heart? Did Satan put it in his own heart? Did he put it in Judas's heart? Here's what we need to understand. Whatever happens between Judas and Satan, it's not Satan, in a sense, twisting and trying to get Judas to go against his own will. It was the will of Judas to sell out Jesus. It was the will of Judas to reject Jesus. Judas is completely opposed to Christ throughout the process of his life, and him and Satan are in agreement over this issue to sell him out. So this has already been established. Peter and Andrew, it's not shared by them. It's only Christ. He knows that Judas and Satan are in unity together to accomplish one purpose, and that is to destroy him. He knows that. He knows that right now, while they're eating together, while they're drinking together, while they're fellowshipping together, Judas is plotting. Judas is planning. Judas is trying to figure out how to profit financially off of this deal. You think about that for a moment. Being in a room, in a sense, with a person you know that is living their life for the purpose of destroying you. For the purpose of getting you fired from your job. For the purpose of making your name look they're, they're evil and they're behind the scenes and they're always using every opportunity to destroy your character or your integrity. That's the kind of guy Judas is. And Jesus knows it. Now, that's the position with Judas and with Satan. And they already come together. The whole purpose of this unity, the end of verse 2, to betray him, to hand him over, to deliver him up. 
They're in unity to do that to Christ. Then you get the contrast, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now, you have Jesus who has everything at his own disposal, who's come from God and is going to God. So every bit of authority, every bit of wisdom, everything that is of God, Jesus possesses it. On the other side, you have Judas, diametrically opposed, complete darkness, complete rebellion, and complete evil. It's like, if we put these two parties together, I I kind of expect the next verse to be, so Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and called down fire, and Judas was exterminated, burnt to a crisp, and done away with, and one little word failed him. And it's like, come on, Jesus, give the knockout blow here. Everything is in your hand. You can do anything you want. This guy is totally against you. Take him out. Are you with me? I mean, that's kind of the sense. You, in a way, you might would see that coming. Let judgment rain down. Pray the imprecatory psalms over his head. Tell him judgment's coming. Tell him he gets what he deserves. Let everybody else know what a jerk he is. That's the way we function. But, but when all of that is said, when all of that is put forth, that Jesus possesses everything, he's come from God, he's going back to God, the next phrase is, all these men laying around this table, and Jesus gets up. Where's Jesus going? Why is he getting up? We're not finished here. We, we, haven't, we haven't really started the meal yet. What's he doing? You remember that water pot? That nobody took the... Jesus goes over there. You know what this is for. You, you know, and everybody in the room goes, only slaves and servants do something like this. What is he doing? There's a shockwave that permeates the room when he goes to the water pot. And notice in verse 4, he lays aside his outer garments, he takes a towel, and he ties it around his waist. Now you have to think for yourself, what do you say as you're sitting at the table? You were just discussing who's the greatest and whether you should get to sit on the right hand or Joe Blow should get to sit on the right hand. You know, really, I think I deserve that spot. And then on the other side of the room, you got a guy trying to figure out how to sell him out. And now you see Jesus take his clothes down, wrap this towel around his waist, and you've seen this a hundred times over, performed by a slave. Is, it, is he going to wash my feet? And, and then the conviction and the conscience. Everybody here knows this. The only one that should have had their feet washed was Jesus. He's the king of the universe. He's the holy one of God. He's the Messiah. They should have found it as a privilege to wash his feet. Oh, let me. They should have went back to John chapter 12 and talked to a woman named Mary. And they should have broken an alabaster bar. And they should have washed his feet with their hair. But nobody had thought that. And now conviction is mounted in their heart at their lack of a willingness to serve Christ. And now they see it before them. Him, in regard, serving them who didn't deserve to be served. 
It's an astounding picture. Verse 5, he pours the water into basin, and he began. Now, I don't know who he began with. I just know eventually he's going to come to Peter. And the text doesn't tell us who he began with, but he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. You know, I don't know great pictures, and I'm not a great illustrator of certain things, I suppose. But uh, I'll give you a biblical one here, and then I'll give you an example. Uh, very briefly, you know the text very well. Philippians, and it's chapter 2, and you'll know this text. You can turn there if you like, but you'll be very familiar with it. Philippians chapter 2, in regards to Christ, it says this. But Christ emptied himself. By taking, this is Philippians 2, 7, by taking the form of a slave, doulos. It's got to at least stagger you a bit, church. The king of glory, who spoke everything into existence, humbled himself and became a slave. He was born in the likeness of men and found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Rush hour traffic. We like to tell everybody how to calculate the cabbage. We want to be large and in charge. We want to make sure that our enemy knows what we feel, what we think, and we want to tell them how it is. And we ain't taking nothing off nobody because everybody puts on their, their pants one leg at a time. They pull themselves boots on one boot at a time. And so we're, we're tough, we're large, and nobody's talking smack to me. You ain't telling me nothing. Don't tell me to wear a mask. Don't tell me to take a vaccine. There's no implications of that statement other than we don't like to be told what to do. And Jesus acts like a slave. In a room where he knows he's right. They're in pride, 11 of them are, and one of them's in deception and is a traitor. And Jesus is right. How many times do you say this? I know I'm right. Maybe it's not about your rights. Maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's not about your agenda. Maybe we should look at a text like this and say, yeah, well, is it what that old thing, what would Jesus do? I don't know how people are answering that question, but I don't think it's John 13. Maybe it's like this. Would it not be a little bit shocking? I, don't, I can't pronounce the mayor of Azel's name, but anyways. Would it, would it be a little bit, would it get your attention tomorrow if the mayor of Azel was riding on the back of a trash truck in Pelican Bay picking up trash for free? Hey, wouldn't it leave, what, what is that guy doing? He's got his suit on. He's riding on the back of the trash truck picking up trash in Pelican Bay. You're like... What is going on here? Nobody does that. You know, in all of written literature, all Jewish literature, all uh, extra-biblical literature, there's not one example in the known writings of the world of a person of reputation, king, prince, somebody of high esteem. There's no record anywhere of one of them washing someone else's feet. This is the only record in existence. The king of of the universe, holy, 
thrice holy and undefiled, without blemish and without spot, perfect in word, thought, and deed, wrapping a towel around his waist, washing Judas's feet. It's staggering. But it's just as staggering to me that he's washing the other 11 who are debating about who's the greatest. What love is this? What kind of love is this that would serve the unservable? What kind of love would give to those who don't deserve anything? What type of love does this? Here's what we, we would cheer and say amen if Jesus got up and said, You all need to repent. You all need to turn from your wicked, self-righteous pride, and you need to leave Satan, and you, you're going to hell if you don't change. We'd be like, yeah, Jesus told them. But we're brought face to face with an issue here that troubles us. Because we have a Savior who doesn't do any of that in this scene. He bows down as a slave and begins to wash their feet. Staggering. He came to Simon Peter, verse 6. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, in Greek grammar, this phrase here has an air of indignation to it. Peter is almost offended by this action. He's like, he's looking at the physical aspects. He don't understand what's going on here spiritually. He's like, that can't be positive. It's not right. Maybe he's saying, I should be washing feet. But uh, this, no, uh -uh. You, you can't be washing feet. That can't be happening in this room. So he sees the physical and he's offended by it in a sense. Jesus answers him in verse 7. This is a spiritual issue that's going on in this room. What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. After these things, you will get it. After what things? After the cross after the tomb, after the resurrection, after the ascension. It's all going to make sense that this washing that's being talked about here has to do with a washing by blood for salvation. And it has to do with the washing of feet on a daily basis as a means of sanctification. And you don't get all of that here. You don't understand that. They will get it. But right now, Peter is like the woman in John 4. He's in the physical and Jesus is in the spiritual. And the two are not connecting together. Well, when Jesus says that, Peter says in verse 8 through 10, the first part of verse 10, Peter says to him, Look, you'll never wash my feet. He's still looking at the physical. The whole idea of a king washing this, his feet, this doesn't, no, I'm not going to do that. My pride, my arrogance, I, it's just like, no, I, this ain't happening. Remember when he got rebuked and said, Satan getting behind me? Peter's zealous. He's the one with his open mouth, and here he is again. You ain't washing my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you don't have no part. You've got no fellowship. You've got no union with me. Now think about it, church. If we're looking to the cross event, if we're not washed by the blood of the Lamb, we have no part with Christ. But if you've been washed, you have a part. If you've already been washed, you can't get washed again. You know, there's 15 ways of salvation. If you've been washed, you've been washed. You don't need to take another bath. The blood of the Lamb has already purified you and made you white. If you've been washed, then you can be a part. But 
But if you're not washed, remember Judas is still in the room. If you're not washed, and Judas is not washed. That's going to be a good implication, but Jesus may wash his feet this day as an act of, an act of love and service to an enemy, but he has not been washed in the sense of salvation. And he'll say that at the end of the text. If I did not wash you, you don't have a part. Well, then Simon, I mean, he goes from one extreme to the other. You've got to bless the guy. At least he's got zeal and passion. At least he's not frozen and chosen, right? So verse 9, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, if that's the case, not my feet only, but my hands and my head, wash everything I got. Well, Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. If you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, then you don't need to take another bath. But your feet do need to be washed. The feet represent life. The feet represent direction. As we go through life, we pick up dirt along the way. We get implications in our life. We sin. We fail. We come up short. And so our feet are continually in need of being washed. And actually the story is very fitting because the only one who can wash our feet is Jesus. Because he's the only one whose feet does not need to be washed. There's no impurity in his feet. So, yeah, they should have made the implication to try to wash his feet. But the story's bringing out that reality. There's no impurities in him. He's the one that washes. So every Sunday, every morning you wake up, you read your Bible, and you pray, and you seek God. We're having a foot washing, if you will. We're, we're repenting. We're confessing. We're asking for grace. We're asking for mercy. Lord, in my day this day, I've picked up dirt along the way. Would you have mercy again? Would you cleanse me again? Would you purify me again? I'm your child, and I don't want to get all covered up in dirt. Just keep on washing me, because I've already been washed and think about it in the old baptist hymn if you will i'm certainly not going to sing it uh but you think about it in this old hymn this guy was from pennsylvania that wrote this thing uh elisha hoffman was from pennsylvania <laughs> have you been to jesus for the cleansing power are you washed in the blood of the lamb are you fully trusting in his grace this hour are you washed in the blood of the lamb are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin. And be washed with the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. If you've been washed, you don't need to take a bath again. What you need is daily cleansing of a foot washing that Jesus provides by His grace. Now, to finish up, we get down here to the end, and we see in verse 10, we stopped off at, but it's completely clean. And then he says, at the very end of verse 10, and you are clean, 11 of them, but not every one. Not all of them. Judas has not taken a bath. And you can wash his feet till the cows come home, and he still won't be clean. Caution. A lot of people come through the church for foot washing. But they hadn't taken a bath. And they come in, 
to clean their conscience, to make themselves feel better about themselves, because I went to church, I got a little Jesus going on, and they feel better. You can do foot washings for the next 30 years, but unless you have repented and been washed by the blood of the Lamb, foot washing is not going to get you to heaven. It's not going to make it. You're going to have to have a true conversion and a bath in the blood of Christ who has the power to make you white as snow. Now, once you have that, foot washings will mean something. Judas could have his feet washed until he commits suicide, but it ain't helping him. And that's what Jesus makes clear here. And you're clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, last verse. For he knew, Jesus knew, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Notice, the 11 are clean because the what Christ is going to do on the cross is a guarantee. Judas is not clean because there's no atonement for him on the cross. You see the connection. And so on the cross, he atones for his own. This is specific, elective love. But general love is not dismissed. And this is where every one of you Reformed people need to wake up and smell the coffee. Because this is the great danger in Calvinism and Reformed theology is we start thinking that somehow we love these elect people of God and we don't have any care for the outside world. Do not miss Christ washing Judas' feet. Here's the things we think and here's the things we say. I don't know why John Speed goes down to the abortion clinic. Ain't nobody ever going to listen to him. Maybe he's washing feet because he loves Jesus. Well, I don't know why Cody and Jeff go down to their stockyard. None of them people are ever going to come to our church. Wait, what are you thinking? Maybe they're showing the love of Christ and they're just washing the feet of enemies. Maybe that's what's going on. They're just giving out a generic love because they flat don't know who's elect and who's not elect. And they just keep loving on people with the gospel that perhaps some of them may be washed. I'm traveling. I drove seven, sixteen, seventeen hundred 1,700 miles this week. And so, uh, phone rings. I'm getting close to my destination. The phone rings. Hey, how close are you? I'm about this close. I'm about to stop at Boomland. True story. You have to go there someday. Boomland. person on the other end of the phone says, Whatever you do, don't stop there. Why would I not stop there? Hey, I'm just telling you, there's black people there, and they got their pants hanging down, and you can lose your life there. That's what he said confessing Christian. You, you go in there, it's dangerous. You got your mom, you got your daughter, and you're going to go to Boomland? I said, I, man, I was mad, like instant mad. I said, I said, what do you think? You want me to find a Christian gas station? Where, where's one at? Perhaps maybe there's a whole bunch of enemies at Boomland, and perhaps I can wash somebody's feet. So, so he's like, I just couldn't believe it. I was so offended by the racial tones of it. He's like, well, that's not what I meant. And I'm like, well, what exactly did you mean? What are you saying here? Avoid this because there's that kind of people? That's the kind of people Jesus washed their feet. So he said, well, I'm not going to argue with him. I said, why don't you quit then? True story. So I drive in. My mama and my daughter, they go into the store. I'm getting gas. I get out the evangelism dog. His name's Festus. You walk Festus, you draw a crowd. It's this black lady goes, Oh, that's the cutest dog I've ever seen. Why don't you come over here and pet him? So this black lady comes over. She pets my dog. We get to share the gospel. Christ, give her a gospel track. Praise the Lord. 
So then I go in the store, cash register, there's a line. The lady at the cash register, she says to the person, have a blessed day. The next person, a blessed day, have a blessed day, have a blessed day. I come up, she says, have a blessed day. I said, ma'am, you're throwing around the word blessed a lot. Do you know what it means? And her confidence went down. In the... I said, you know what it says in the Bible in Romans chapter 4? Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are not counted against him. This is who's blessed, is one who's been forgiven of their sins. Her eyes got big, she goes, nobody's ever told me that. And number two, now we go outside, go outside, and now we f*** the enemy. So there's a guy, he's leaning up against the post, and this guy's evil. I believe he'd cut your throat if it was dark and had occasion, he'd cut your throat. I have a little bit of fear because this guy's, I mean, I've seen evil, and I'm like, this guy is evil. You see it, right? And so I'm a little bit nervous. My mom and my daughter are about to come out, so I get in the back of my truck, and I act like I'm getting something out of the cooler, right? So he's staring. Every move I make, he's watching me. So I open my cooler. Here comes my mom. Here comes my daughter. And when they come out of the store, I say, Hey, have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And Lydia says, Yes, I have. I said, It's a good thing, because if you don't, you'd have gone to hell. What are you doing here? I'm preaching the gospel to my daughter, but I'm making sure he hears every word of it. We're washing feet here. He said, Well, that guy ain't going to listen. You don't have any idea. But it's still right to love the human race. Where do we get off thinking? Here's, here's how Reformed people read the Bible. Listen closely. For Judas was a swine, and Jesus would not cast him a pearl. That's what we do. I'm not going to share at the abortion clinic, because they're a bunch of pigs, and they, they don't deserve the pearls of the gospel. Who made you the judge of who deserves the gospel? Who made you the judge of who deserves love? What do we learn from Jesus who knew that, Jesus, that Judas was a pig and he washed the pig's feet anyways? Maybe the problem here is, is that you don't love Christ enough and because you don't love Christ enough, you don't love people enough. And it's whenever you get to a point that you're so righteous and holy that you don't offer the gospel and offer Christian love to the lost world, you've gone too far. Oh, that we would receive the implications of this text and that we, like our Savior, would stoop down and take the position of a slave and serve people regardless of what the potential response may be. Think about it. You're telling me you're only going to minister to people who will receive it? You've got a very narrow ministry. Why don't you just go big with the love of Christ and just serve for the glory of Christ and trust when it's all said and done, He will reward you accordingly for the work you've done for His great name. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. I pray that somebody would profit off of this text. I pray that we would get rid of some of our pride and some of our arrogance and that we would humbly serve a lost world and at the same time, we would humbly serve each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we would do so because we learned it from our King. We learned it from our Savior who loved His own to the end. And He also showed love to His enemies. We pray these things by Your Spirit in Christ's name.